new that I learned is that uh, that I need to team up with algae experts <laughs> that I know know enough about algae, uh, even though I live <laughs> in Florida for the past 13 years. So we have one of the more exciting projects I have. We're partnering with aquaculturalists, uh, people that have a, a degree in oceanography or marine biology. And we're learning, uh, they actually make a living of uh, harvesting oysters in the, in the, uh, the uh, Tampa Bay area or in the Gulf of Mexico. And they're also venturing into potentially algae growing. It's it's really challenging. It's a whole different world. It's like farming, but on the sea. So when you ask me about <laughs> future, and I know Kansas probably not, you, uh, you you won't see a lot of algae around there. But if this were to work, I don't think it. I don't think you can even. But but if this were to work, I think there may be an option. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds of the beef industry. Today, we are joined by Dr. Nicholas DiLorenzo, Assistant Professor in Animal Sciences at the North Florida Research and Education Center. Dr. DiLorenzo earned his master's and doctoral degrees from the University of Minnesota and conducted postdoctoral research at Texas Tech University, focusing on feedlot nutrition and management. In 2010, he joined the University of Florida as an assistant professor, and we are excited to have him on the podcast today to talk about all things nutrition, forage, and performance today. Welcome, Dr. DiLorenzo. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for making the time for this. Oh, we're we're so happy to have you. Um, you know, what's what's new are you in your world, and, and how are things in Florida? Very good, very very exciting. It's uh, quite warm uh, here right now. Uh, uh, we're at the uh, Florida Cattlemen Convention, which is a big event that attracts a lot of people, not only from Florida but from from different states too. We have a very vibrant uh, trade show and some educational components that go along with that. So uh, it's a it's a pretty exciting. If you haven't been, or if anybody that may be listening to this have not been to our uh, annual convention it's always or almost always in marco island a beautiful place in, in south florida on the gulf and uh it's a perfect combination of of uh, business and education with uh, some people may even make it into small family vacation when they can because it's at a, at a really nice location so yeah uh, we've been uh, working on uh, delivering some of the research results that we had over the year and also uh, working on 
new projects. So that, that's, that's been a, an exciting, it's always an exciting time in June when we come to this meeting. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy AgriSlat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Uh, I, I definitely agree with that. I, um, I went to the Florida Cattlemen's Conference maybe 10 years ago or eight years ago or something like that. And I just was, you know, appalled at how large it is. I would, I think many, you know, many cattle producers might be surprised to learn just how massive the beef industry is in Florida. I mean, I know that before I got involved, I used to think that Florida, you know, you think Disney world, you think beaches and Miami and things like that. And there are a lot of cows and cattle, um, yeah, I was there actually. Um, I don't know when this episode will air, but I was there in early June for the um, Livestock Marketing Association Auctioneering Championship. And I drove, I flew into Fort Myers and I drove to the site and drove through some beautiful cattle country, um, lots of cows. So it was a really, really nice drive. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it is, it's very close. Yeah, people usually fly into Fort Myers, it's about an hour drive to Marco Island. And it's, it's a beautiful small island um, that's perfect combination people and, and just just visiting with with neighbors and you go to the, the grocery store to the uh, to eat and everybody knows that June this time we have this convention so people recognize the uh, it's not very often they get a tractor park in the front of the Marriott <laughs> hotel they do get uh, yeah John Deere always parked a big tractor there and uh, it's part of the part of the deal. So it's really amazing. And, and it's, a, it's a big event for the island. That's great. You know, that's always great to hear that they're welcoming of, of farmers and ranchers and things like that. Yeah. Um, well, well, let's jump in. You're in Florida now, but I know that's not where your career started. So maybe to start off with, can you tell us about how you got involved in the beef industry and your career path so far and, and how you ended up in your role in um in florida there with the in animal science absolutely yeah um i'm originally from argentina so and and my family has been involved in the cattle business for for, for generations and uh, my passion about cattle and agriculture in general started uh, back in my uh, undergrad days in argentina uh, following my grandpa and my uncle whenever they were going to the ranch uh, helping uh, with cattle spending all summers there well vacation as soon as I finished classes I lived in the in the not actually it was not a rural area where I, I grew up but the family operation was about an hour and a half away from from where I grew up so I used to go as soon as classes will end I'll, I'll, I'll move to this other uh, smaller town to just just move to the farm and spend the whole summer there and, and some of the winter breaks so I always, uh, yeah, I, I, I've always been passionate about that. I, I not always knew that I wanted to 100% be in, in agriculture. Agriculture, yes, I wasn't sure that beef cattle nutrition, which is what I do now, was my passion. I actually uh, played a little bit with genetics, plant genetics uh, in the undergrad and, and some undergrad projects that got me pretty excited. Uh, I oh. have some small uh, research appointment with canola, actually, of all things, 
I got to okay. that. Uh, I remember harvesting and uh, canola and just looking at yields and at fat and things like that. So I was a bit undecided. I was always passionate about science. So that was always my, my passion. And then I really, uh, yeah, really met a great professor at the university that he was very passionate about cattle nutrition and, and management in general. And that's really how I, I became more and more passionate about beef cattle. And then I could relate that to my grandpa's operation and everything that I was going through in my undergrad classes. So um, that's kind of how I got started. In Argentina, it's a six-year degree. My, my um, degree is oh, okay. engineer, undergrad. So you get exposed a little bit to research and a few other things. So that was, it was a good, good way to, yeah, to, to, to uh, get exposed to everything before making a decision of, of which, in which direction I wanted to, to go next. So. That's uh, that's kind of how I I became more passionate about that. And when I I went to my undergrad in agriculture engineer, in the last couple of years, when we have more specialized classes and forages and cattle uh, were definitely the my my favorite classes. Even though I had to do uh, plant pathology, plant genetics, uh, soil science. We had all kinds of classes. And then towards the end, when when I had those classes that really, I think they defined my career, I, I made up my mind that I wanted to to continue studying that area. So I think that that's you mentioned two things that I think are very common in um, in people in a role like yours, like in a professor role, and that's you said that you have a passion for science and that you had a professor who was like you know, really involved and was excited and that you really, you know, admired and such like that. And I think those are two things that really help people find a lot of people in your role, find a path that they're on. And I, I just thought that, that was really interesting that you said both of those. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I kind of took that too, as, as uh, to, to realize the importance that I have. Sometimes you don't think you're influencing somebody, especially students. And, and my experience kind of led me to, to yeah, to realize that just the smallest things sometimes can be really uh, appealing for the student. It can be uh, the spark that that ignites their passion for for something. In my case, it was just listening to the professor how passionate he was about cattle production in general or livestock production because it was a little bit of everything. Is like that kind of got me interested in that. And but there is a little bit of lack along the way, I think, or. or or some sort of uh, randomness, I think, into that and on how I ended up here uh, from from where I was studying. Do you, um, I, just circling back to the student, the role, you know, student instructor interaction at Florida, do you advise any students or teach any classes? Are you solely research and extension? Um, do you get to, do you get to work with any students? I do. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, have a large graduate student program. My appointment in, in Florida, it's a 65% research, 35% extension. So I do uh, that part of the, the, the teaching is what they call informal teaching, which is advising graduate students, but it's taking up a lot of my time and it's part of my program that I really enjoy. It falls more within the research uh, category, but it certainly has been a, a good, a really good, good way to uh, recruit students, and and all of the research projects end up with with a student in, in charge of it. 
So yes, I I I work with students on a daily basis. I uh, I have learned how to. I don't know if I learn. I think I developed some strategies about recruiting that I think uh, are very important. And yeah, I always try to relate to my days as a student, what things I like, what I didn't like, and whenever it's possible. I'm getting farther and farther away from those days, but I still remember. And I kind of try to provide the same experience. I I had an excellent uh, graduate uh, student experience with, with my advisor, uh, Alfredo Di Costanzo. He was a phenomenal mentor, and, and I took a lot of that. Uh, for in the way I advise my students, uh, and a lot of that personal approach, that, that combination of high expectations, but at the same time, uh, just an equal treatment. Like with they are their future scientists or colleagues, so from day one, uh, treating them as uh, as that, not not so much as the students that they might not know. And at times, yeah, there's time where where I do wonder but but uh, they always come around the students that's great you know to hear i mean it's part of your you know of your job role there but it's also here that not really great to hear that you put conscious effort into making that relationship and those experiences for those students as positive as possible while also creating that research environment that's going to get results and so that's just as a former master's student i appreciate hearing you know that um you know that there are other professors out there like that, so that, that's that's great to hear. While we're we're kind of talking about research here, you know, and in, in several different forms, is there anything that you can share with us that you're working on right now that is really <clears throat> has you really excited um, that you're looking forward to seeing results or anything like that? Can you share something with us? Sure, yeah, absolutely. And and I my my research portfolio it's a, a bit diverse, always in the subject of beef cattle nutrition and management. But uh, yeah, I do have a, a diverse funding portfolio where projects that are funded by the Florida Cattlemen Association, some uh, many of them by the USDA. And a few by the private industry. So right now, those are the three main uh, funding streams of my program. And I, some of the things that I overall my my program it works in, in improving the the feed efficiency or, or the efficiency of beef production systems, minimizing the environmental impact with attempting to minimize environmental impact. Within that, there are many lines that open. One that I very actively working on is uh, identifying more efficient animals. And that's really where my research and extension programs merge. I do uh, have an active role. I've been the, uh, um, the the person in charge of the Florida bull test. So as part of that, mm-hmm. that is a big extension program uh, here at UF. And uh, for the past uh, six years that I've been involved with, with that program, I was involved before when I joined the university in, in a different role, more as uh, working on the nutritional aspects. Now I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of the program. And it's been a very rewarding experience because it allowed us to create impact in the state by allowing producers to bring bulls being tested for feed efficiency and then uh, hopefully incorporating that into their operations, that genetics, to improve feed efficiency while maintaining uh, growth performance, which is it's like absolutely important, and, and carcass performance too. 
So that that's really where my extension and research program merge. But uh, more getting more into the the, the hardcore uh, research part of it. I've been working yeah. uh, for years on uh, feed additives, always looking for ways okay. to improve ruminal fermentation. In the past, has been more aimed at uh, efficiency, feed efficiency. Uh, I work with feed additives such as ionophores, uh, plant secondary compounds, tannins, um, organic acids, etc. Probiotics, I do work a lot with pro and prebiotics. That's a very active line of research. And I think there's it's a changing world and it's amazing how the technology advances. Back when I was in my undergrad, I remember doing lit reviews about uh, pro and prebiotics. Actually, I don't even think that were prebiotics. I think we were starting to use prebiotic back then. The, the probiotics mm-hmm. were a big hit at the time. And yeah. um, we did not get the result. I did a lot of some of that work uh, back in 2002, 2003, and it wasn't very encouraging. And it's just exciting to see how maybe 11 years later, things have changed. We learned we have different tools. We're learning more. We got ways to measure now the the, the microbiome, for example, and, and uh, we are now seeing things that before I don't think we were able to measure. So that's been a very exciting part of it, and, and it ties very well with my greenhouse gas emissions uh, part of the research, which is an area that is absolutely growing exponentially, that, that part of my research program. Well, speaking of greenhouse gases, you brought that in, so that's a great segue you know, are there any big breakthroughs on the horizon when it comes to research and cattle nutrition or management in terms of greenhouse gas reduction? I mean, can you give us a, maybe what you see coming down the road five years from now? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, sadly, uh, I don't know if we have any major breakthroughs uh, in terms of compounds that are consistently decreasing methane uh, or even management strategies. Some of the most successful ones are coming from the private sector and they've been in the form of analogs to certain enzymes that are key in the in the methane uh, cycle. There's been some consistent uh, and documented effects on reduction of methane. Unfortunately, for reasons that I'm not fully aware of, the regula- regulatory uh, field has prevented some of those, uh, well, particularly one of those compounds to be approved, at least in the U.S., to my knowledge. I know it's been approved in some other places. So it may happen soon. Um, right now, uh, we don't have that tool available. And that uh, actually, we get to discuss quite a bit that during uh, projects that I, one of my the projects funded I have through Dairy Management Inc., uh, looking at on farm reductions of methane uh, in dairy farms. So, with that, we get to evaluate different technologies. So, we would like to evaluate different technologies that are ready to be deployed on farm that we could feed to dairy cattle and uh, sell the milk. And that's when we became aware of that challenge. Some of the best uh, options that we have, which one of them, it's that that, that, that particular molecule uh, analog called pre-nitroxypropanol is quite it's widely known by now. Um, and the other one is the use of algae. There are certain type of algae that have uh, uh, some, some plant secondary compounds that uh, they have a very similar effect to this other molecule, which inhibits methane emissions to, to a great degree and somewhat consistently, but the, the research uh, has been slow to, to, to appear, particularly on the algae side. So those two right now, every time we talk about methane, 
they emerged as the top and they made uh, the headlines and in many many cases it's it's something that has been documented unfortunately they're not widely available today either for regulatory purposes or uh, both or for uh, supply uh, issues so we right now we don't have a, a tool uh, in terms of and maybe strictly talking about feed additives as far as management practices is the same or even worse there's very few that have been documented to have an impact you mentioned algae and that's one i've heard a lot about in the news like i've read articles and things about how algae has been shown to reduce greenhouse gas emissions um so i'm just wondering like i live in kansas um, I know I, there's algae around me, but not as much probably as you need. So I'm just wa- I'm wondering, I'm curious about the, the affordability to incorporate algae at some point for producers nationwide. Is that something that, is that going to be an option that can be affordable for everyone to use? Or do you think, in your opinion, is that going to be something that is more accessible and more affordable for people on the coasts? Or maybe I'm completely... It's a, yes, that's a million dollar question. That's an excellent uh, question. That's kind of what I was going to go with my, uh, the last part of my, my response on the five years. So this is a good segue to the, to get to the, what I see this in the five years. Um, unfortunately, the algae is very confined to a certain type of algae that have been identified to have this compound. So it's not that every and all algae out there, I'm, I have to confess, I'm learning a lot of an algae, particularly in the last couple. I have three projects now that involve uh, algae in, in, in some way or form. One of them funded by the Florida Cattlemen Association. So we are learning a lot of the things. I'm actually, one thing that it's not new that I've learned is that uh, that I need to team up with algae experts <laughs> that I know know enough about algae, uh, even though I live <laughs> in Florida for the past 13 years. So we have one of the more exciting projects I have. We're partnering with agriculturalists, uh, people that have a, a degree in oceanography or marine biology, and we're learning. Uh, they actually make a living of uh, harvesting oysters in the in the, uh, the uh, Tampa Bay area and the Gulf of Mexico, and they're also venturing into potentially algae growing. It's it's really challenging. It's a whole different world. It's like farming, but on the sea. So when you ask me about <laughs> future, and I know Kansas probably not, you, uh, you you won't see a lot of algae around there. But if this were to work, yeah, we don't, I, yeah, we don't have a lot of that. I, I don't think it. I don't think you can even. But but if this were to work, I think there may be an option to make it available. There's plenty of, of ocean, of course. And, and I think the industry will figure out a way to, to make it economically feasible. But, but before that, it has to be proven to be effective. And of course, it has to be cost effective. And one thing I always emphasize with, on, on methane, and not just me, but everybody that really has been working on, the, on methane emission mitigation, is the need to uh, find solutions that do not compromise production. So the solution has to come uh, from an approach that would not reduce either digestibility, definitely health uh, and animal well-being, but it has to come uh, that solution uh, from from an from yeah uh, accompanied by a similar if not better performance than what what uh, we are used to. So yeah, the carbon footprint it's it's key, but it has to be taken in the context of of production. I think everybody that 
that is working on, on greenhouse gas emissions in the context of population growth, demand for animal protein products. Everybody agrees. There's one thing that we all agree on is that, too, that the need to to use uh, an approach that will not compromise production. So, uh, yeah, five, 10 years from now, I think we will figure out a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> I, I confess at some point I thought that maybe we could wild harvest algae and especially the ones that are annoying like sargassum and uh, maybe feed it to cattle. And it's not as easy as I thought. And, and not all the algae, one thing I learned, not all the algae really work at mitigating methane. Um, but at the same time, working with experts in the field, there's just a ton of different species that we don't even know what they do. So, so I think there is some potential there. Uh, scale up, uh, the ability not to scale a, not up. All is yeah, it's going to be, yeah. So you wouldn't be surprised if then in the future we do. There, there's some private investments that, uh, that they're, they're scary and, and their scale. Uh, one particular that I'm aware of in Hawaii that definitely there might be something there, I guess. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Um, something you said a little bit ago, you're talking about, <clears throat> oh, you're talking about the intersection of you don't want to have something that decreases greenhouse gas emissions and then it negatively impacts something else or it's not profitable. And I think that that's a point that <clears throat> that's really a complex intersection between animal welfare and then like, I guess, environmental sustainability. Um, I was, I uh, was part of a panel or hosted a panel um, in February at the National Cattlemen's uh, NCBA trade show and Dr. Lily, Lily Edwards Calloway and Dr. Kim Stackhouse Lawson, they um, spoke about their respective areas and how like there are no black and white answers that it's really gray because you can't do something like it, it may reduce greenhouse gases by a certain percent, but if it totally negatively impacts animal welfare, that's not a solution. And so I think that that's something when we have to take all the other facets of beef production into consideration, that adds just another several layers of complexity to the, to the issue because everything works together. It's not, you know, they're not in silos or, you know, they work very closely together. And so I think that's something that, that makes progress and solutions come more slowly because there's not just a blanket, um, a blanket solution that works for everything. And I think that's something that we have to be aware of and have to make sure that people know is that things are complex because they're related. Absolutely. One of the biggest challenges with methane is that it's like I call when I tell my student when we talk about methane, it's a necessary evil because really methane formation in the room and has a, has a purpose. It's just a purpose to get rid of this post of those uh, reducing equivalents that are formed during the fermentation. So in order to ferment feedstuff, we need we need to redirect all of those reducing equivalents somewhere. And and methane has been the way the way to do it. So we do need some methanogenesis and uh, and, and there are there are very well documented consequences of totally reducing or or uh, eliminating completely methanogenesis in the rumen and it's never been been good. So uh, it has to be definitely a cop coupled with another approach uh, where maybe we can make use of that store energy somehow, but it's been a huge challenge. I don't think, I think everybody would, would agree. And you mentioned some of the key players that are in the, in the sustainability arena, uh, people in Colorado that I, I know they're doing a lot of work and, and I really would love to see more people 
jumping into this. <laughs> and and jumping just because if, if it's a fascinating area of work and and because it's the it's something we need to tackle, not because there's money. <laughs> That's re- unfortunately that has been in many cases the, the driver behind people wanting to do more research in greenhouse gas emissions. Um, when I started doing this 10 years ago, there was not a lot of money on that or a lot of excitement. But for me, it was just one more aspect of ruminal fermentation, which I was always passionate about. But it was not nearly as excited. This is a, a program that is a good example that my greenhouse gas emission mitigation program, that it was totally driven by need. I never anticipated working that much on that or having as many students solely dedicated to to that that portion of animal production. So, and I still do not want to yeah, ignore some other very important areas such as forage digestibility. I've been working on at a system level trying to improve forage digestibility for years. Usually that comes accompanied by more methane emissions. So I I need to figure I have to figure out a way to reconcile both both parts of my program. Improved digestibility, but not more emissions. There's a you have to find the the balance there. Um, so for producers who are interested in greenhouse gas reduction and and want to improve that climate impact, do you could you share perhaps two things that that you've learned or two pieces of advice for cattle producers who want to improve their environmental impact? Things that they can implement on the ranch, right on or the farm or ranch right now. Absolutely. Well, and it, it all depends on the type of operation, of course. But uh, it's yeah, challenging question too. But but it, but it, it's really what I that's what I do on a daily basis. But with extension, I get asked that question a lot, so I know I know how hard it's to answer. There are ways to um, to reduce the carbon footprint, and better use of resources is always a good one. Improving efficiency, absolutely. It's one of the easiest ways. If we can produce more with what we have, identifying those animals that are more productive, for example. And we, we have that very well documented. If an animal produces the same beef with five less uh, pounds of feed, uh, that is a, a huge uh, uh, win for the carbon footprint. It has two effects. It has the direct effect of uh, lowering that what we call uh, emissions intensity, so the amount of emissions per unit of product. But at the same time, the emissions that were used to generate those five extra pounds of feed, whether it was a forage, if it was a grain or a grain byproduct. So that's where life, uh, life cycle assessment come into play to really assess uh, that, that, that multiplier, that impact that that, that has. So. Um, Better use of resources, uh, forages, capturing soil, uh, capturing carbon is not as easy uh, as we think, but but there's ways to to do it. Silver pasture systems seem to work, uh, not so much in the area where I'm working. I mean, I always see examples of that in the tropics that uh, seem to be successful. Uh, unfortunately, in my direct experience, we have not been able to to implement it successfully, at least in Florida, uh, it's always one or the other. I mean, it's always the cattle get compromised, cattle production is compromised, or, or uh, yeah, timber, it's, it's uh, production is compromised. It's really not that simple. But um, good use of the resources, whether it's feed or, or uh, just store forages, 
maybe there would be down the road um, improvements such as the ones that we had in, in uh, types of like corn and sorghum, for instance, with brown midrib. Uh, genetically modified materials that might have lower uh, or increased digestibility, maybe less lignin. I think those are uh, tools that we have already uh, that, that we could implement. Um, maybe the easiest one, and I've done the, the math several times, is just, uh, just the low-hanging fruit is calling inefficient animals or uh, being more aggressive, for instance, at that's where really my extension, my day-to-day extension, we talk about um, making sure we have a breeding season, tightening it up to 90. In our case, we do 75 days. And any cows that are cows or heifers that are outside of that window, uh, they perhaps don't, don't need to be in that operation. That is, that is one of the easiest ways to improve the carbon footprint of an operation without even buying a new feed additive or anything like that. Um, um, working on, on stocking rates and grazing operations, strategic supplementation. Sometimes I've done that, those calculations too, with sometimes a very small amount of a, a supplement, and it could be an energy or a protein supplement. It, it really enhances uh, productivity tremendously. And as a direct consequence of that, the carbon footprint goes down. So that's just looking at the low hanging fruits. And then down the road, I would love to be able to recommend producers to add an additive to their diet that is, right now, it has really been challenging to, to do so. But, but it continues to be one of the, the most important areas of research for, for many of us. But it's, it's been a, a very, uh, very long road in that, in that sense. It's interesting that, you know, we we're talking about there are no blanket solutions. That's the word I'm looking for. There's no blanket solutions, but one easy way to make an impact is just to cull animals. Like you said, in your words, cull inefficient animals, animals that aren't falling in that breeding season. And I think that, I mean, that's, that's fabulous advice. Just stick to those good production management and you can have the side effects that are, you know, better for, you know, environmental impact. And that's, that's really, I'm, I'm glad you said that. So, um, we have talked a lot about your research and greenhouse gas emissions and um, additives and things like that. But when you're not doing research or working with cattle, you know, what else are you filling your time with? Like, you have any hobbies or things like that? Thanks for the question. Hobbies are very important. There needs to be balance in everybody's life. So uh, when I'm not, I'm very passionate about research and extension. You might be able to tell, but when I'm not working, uh, I love watching soccer as any good Argentinian and South American soccer. It's a big deal for me. I like to play soccer too. I, we do play with students and some of my colleagues at work. We get together every now and then to, to play. Uh, I love fishing. That's a big, big uh, passion. And, and uh, when I was in Minnesota for six years fishing, we had land of 10,000 lakes. I used to go almost uh, uh, everywhere, drive less than half hour and be in a lake fishing. Here's a little different. Uh, um, I've learned that Florida fishing is trickier, but I've been able to enjoy both uh, saltwater and freshwater fishing and uh, quite different and quite variety, the, the options. So I enjoy that. Um, Reading, I used to enjoy reading uh, a lot more. Now I spend so much time reading at work that uh, I realize that 
I'm reading less and less and maybe more uh, enjoy time outside. I like gardening, uh, vegetable garden. I, I really, uh, I got that from my grandpa. Probably he was an Italian immigrant and uh, he was big into gardening. So he always had a huge garden and uh, full of different vegetables. So I, I tried to do that. I also learned how much challenging gardening is in Florida. It seems like we have every pest known to, to the human <laughs> It is amazing how how uh, how quickly they develop here. And uh, so I have blackberries that I've been learning how to trim, but uh, within a week they get full of bugs. Tomatoes, it's amazing. They're beautiful today. Wait, no, no. I was just saying that they're, they're talking about the challenge. Tomatoes, same thing. They look green beautiful they start turning red and i don't know out of where just a swarm of insects different type they come in and in less than a day there's no tomatoes so i need to i really suck at integrated pest management <laughs> <laughs> well you don't have any ice or anything to kill them in the winter time they don't knock back they stay there you mentioned that you're a soccer fan i heard this guy name Lionel Messi, who is an Argentinian, is coming to Florida. How excited are you about that? Very excited. Very surprised, too. I would have never in a million years. I know there was a rumor that he might be coming, and I never thought that that was possible. I have to confess, I already started looking for tickets, but they're way out of my budget <laughs> right now. So I might yeah. wait until he started getting a little older and, and not playing as well to be able to afford going to maybe Orlando. That's the closest I got. I already have a map. I could go to Orlando and drive four hours, Atlanta and drive four hours, or I think there's another one in North Carolina. What they mean. Well, you got to do it. If he's the greatest, I, I don't follow soccer very closely, really, at all. Um, I'm in Kansas, and I have American football to cheer for. But I have heard a lot that that is a big deal that he is coming to the U.S. football uh landscape or whatever so i hope yeah, that you absolutely. get to go I, I like sports in general i do follow american football too i'm not not uh i usually get just passionate towards the end the super bowl the, the big game the college games uh but i don't i don't follow the, the news on, on uh, college football and definitely i like college football at nfl i have to admit just the atmosphere you have a pretty good team down there to cheer yeah. for a couple of them we're we're excited for it well, we are, and we're coming up on college football season too. I think we're only like ninety days away, so that's very exciting. I well, during my my time at Texas Tech, that's when I realized how important uh, that was a, a cultural shock moving from the Twin Cities uh, all the way to Lubbock, Texas, and it's just amazing how the city gets transformed around the fall when when football season is about to start and the, the passion that there is. There's a little bit of difference in, um, I would say, the the level of football hype between Minnesota and Texas. I would say those are <laughs> very different atmospheres around football. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But uh, So I do enjoy sports, uh, yeah, sports, gardening, and fishing. Maybe it's just the three uh, hobbies. And spending time with the family, of course. And if I can combine that, if I can get my daughter to help me, with gardening every now and then I do, uh, that's that's even a plus. Well, that's great. I have a six-year-old daughter and I like to get her out in the garden too. She just picked all of our radishes the other day and she thought that was very exciting. So it's a good way to get kids to learn about 
their food and such. And it sends a message. I think it's very important. So yeah, I, I, I try, try to do that as often as I can. So. It's time for our famous three. Well, that is kind of the end of our, of our formal interview. I do have three wrap up questions and these are, we ask every guest these. So, and you said that you read a lot, so this should be probably easy for you to answer, but what is your favorite beef beef related book or resource, whether it's like a hand, a guide, or maybe it's an extension material, or, or maybe it's a book about, um, a book about cattle or something like that. My husband has a book about dwarfism in Herefords that he loves. So everybody has the, yeah, I can't remember. It's called bull runs or something like that. But anyway, what's your favorite no, beefy? No, beefy my book? favorite book and land remembered. Uh, I can't remember. I'm really bad at. Uh, I really should should look up the author because it is about Florida, how the the cattle industry and the citrus industry in Florida began. Actually, it's a book that they gave to us when I started as an assistant professor years ago, and I didn't get to read it until maybe a couple of years after that. I was too worried about tenure and everything else. It was a fa it's a novel, really, but it is. Uh, it has a lot of historical context on how uh, cattle production began in Florida. Uh, a land remember, I absolutely recommend. I wish I'd, I'd remember the author. And it's really embarrassing that I don't, but it, it's one of my <laughs> okay. favorite Well, our, our audience can, can look it up and they can find the author that way. Um, okay, so turning and pivoting a bit, what is a book that's not related to the beef industry or agriculture that you are currently reading or is maybe one of your favorites? Um, I haven't really been reading anything that it's, it's, uh, yeah, not related to, to agricultural lately. Um, let me think. No, I haven't had anything. Um, I have not been reading anything <laughs> that relaxing when I have time, I just, I'm out in the garden. You're gardening or you're watching football or. Yeah. Or watching football. Yes. Those are all important, and those I've are all very reading, important. Yeah, a lot of, uh, yeah, maybe because of my job reading so much, I, if I, yeah, I, I try to read things that are not related to cattle, but I always get attracted to that anyways. Right. Well, that's okay. All right. And our final wrap-up question is, what is a trait in someone that you admire that um, has allowed them to be successful? Someone that you admire, what's one of their personal characteristics that you think has allowed them to be successful? I always admire uh, people that that uh, know how to recognize talent in others, in others, and, and then uh, that turn that into an effective recruiting and could recruiting or working with them. People that really, I think, it actually is one of the things that's going to be key in the future. Just be able to recognize. We're moving into a world that everything it's uh, electronics, computers, and social media. So the interpersonal skills are are being diminished quite a bit. So the ability to, within a, a short conversation, to spot a person that may be a game changer uh, and, and be able to convince that person to, to work with, with you or in a project, or I think that's, yeah, recognizing talent, I guess, in general, it's one of the things that I think um, I would like to learn more about and work more on. That's interesting. And you're not wrong about interpersonal skills in a time when we're always on phones and screens. It's, it's important to not lose the basic skills of conversation and communication and 
just social absolutely. interaction. In my gratitude, right. and that is one of the things that we, yeah, we, we, I, I try to work on and on them. We do interviews before they join my program. And, and that's when sometimes I wish I, yeah, I had, uh, I've been, I can't complain. I've really been very successful. I think I created a good, good program and I, I'm very happy, but sometimes it's harder and harder to, to, yeah, spot some of those skills in very short conversations. So. Well, that's definitely something to think about and another skill to think about personally. So thank you for sharing that. That is all the time we have for today. Um, I want to thank you, I want to thank you, Dr. DiLorenzo, for joining us here on the Beef Podcast Show. If people want to find more information about you or your research, where can they do that? They can uh, go to the University of Florida uh, Animal Science webpage or uh, NFRC, North Florida Research and Education Center. Uh, both pages are linked uh, to each other so they can find find out more about it. I'm not as good as um, all of my peers uh, sometimes at uh, keeping up with the yeah with the latest publication. I also do have a a, a lab webpage. Uh, uh, it's uh, nutrition.com So it is uh, DiLorenzo Nutrition Lab. Okay. Well, we will make sure to put that in um, the show notes so that people can find that, dlorenzonutritionlab.com, and people will be able to, to look that up and uh, follow your research or get in touch if, you, if they want. So, and thank you again for joining us, and we appreciate you taking time out of your schedule while you're there at Florida Cattlemen's. And to our audience, we hope that you'll join us next week on the Beef Podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you.